So forgiveness is the theme of today's seeker service. Each Sunday this month, we're exploring an idea to ground ourselves in our Unitarian and Universalist roots. And we invite newcomers to experience the richness and depth of our religious community while we refine our own foundations, filling in gaps and forgotten possibilities. So like many spiritual values, forgiveness has two lives. One life is as an abstract, philosophical idea. We can talk about forgiveness in this generalized realm, and this thinking is valuable, a noble thing to do. A church is an ideal place to look at forgiveness as a big idea, a core value, and an abiding spiritual principle. But remaining on this intellectual sphere robs us of the opportunity to fully explore forgiveness. It is in the specifics of our pain and harm that forgiveness lives and breathes. The particulars of our anger or personal hurts are where the challenges of forgiveness reside, as well as where its transformative powers come to full fruition. So to look at forgiveness, both from afar and up close, we turn to someone who has deeply pondered forgiveness for a lifetime, Simon Wiesenthal. Wiesenthal was a young Jewish architect from Poland. In his mid-30s, he barely survived the Nazi death camps. He wound up in the infamously brutal and massive slave labor concentration camp, Mauthausen, when he was liberated. Witness to every imaginable atrocity, Wiesenthal dedicated his life to documenting the crimes of the Holocaust and to hunting down Nazi perpetrators to bring them to trial. So I trust many of you have read his book, The Sunflower, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. Okay. This is a book. This is a book I have bought more than once. I buy to give away to friends who've not read it. It is a powerful testimony to the extremes of human behavior from the totally depraved to the unbelievably generous. I also rebuy it when it's updated with essays in response to Wiesenthal's story. So you heard the Dalai Lama's response to his story as that second reading. So in the first 100 pages of the book, Wiesenthal describes his experiences as a Jew growing up in Poland. Already, by the dawn of the 20th century in Poland, institutionalized anti-Semitic policies color his whole childhood and young adulthood. Long before the start of World War II, hatred dictates where his family lives 
how he is taunted in grade school, and what limited higher educational opportunities he has. Over the course of the war, he is sent to 13 different concentration camps. He details the many processes used to dehumanize the Jews. And he describes his personal struggles with being categorized as subhuman. While being marched through the German-occupied town of Lemberg, Wiesenthal writes, You could read on the faces of the passers-by that we were written off as doomed. I was consumed by a feeling that the world had conspired against us, and our fate was accepted without protest, without a trace of sympathy. The people of Lemberg had become accustomed to the sight of tortured Jews, and they looked at us as one looks at a herd of cattle being driven to the slaughterhouse. At such times, I was consumed by the feeling that the world had conspired against us and our fate was accepted without protest and without a trace of sympathy. While being marched, he notices sunflowers, straight as a soldier on a parade, planted on German graves in a military cemetery. The sunflower comes to represent respect and humanity to him, even in the face of death. Suddenly, I envied the dead soldiers. Each had a sunflower to connect him with the living world and butterflies to visit his grave. For me, there would be no sunflower. I would be buried in a mass grave where corpses would be piled on top of me. No sunflower would ever bring light into my darkness, and no butterflies would dance above my dreadful tomb. What gives Wiesenthal's already powerful story unforeseen depth is an extraordinary experience he has while on a work detail. War can be remarkable. Starving and experiencing cruelty at every turn, he and others are marched for a grisly job to what had been his old high school turned into a military hospital. Unexpectedly, a nurse separates him from his fellow bedraggled workers and beckons him to follow. He's, he's worried whether she's singling him out for torture, more torture, or for certain death. Hesitatingly, he follows her inside the building and into the darkened room of what once was 
his former dean's office. So the juxtaposition of his past and present circumstances in this familiar setting are dizzying. Once his eyes adjust to the lack of light, he sees a man lying in a bed, totally wrapped with bandages. Only his eyes are visible. Near death, this patient is a 22-year-old German SS officer, Carl. Carl wishes to confess his sins. In particular, he wants to tell a Jew, any Jew, about an atrocity that haunts him. What Carl describes is not remarkable in one sense, because it portrays routine cruelty and destruction repeated throughout the war. Carl's SS unit crams over 200 Jews, men, women, children, families into a three-story house. Wearied and drained, Wiesenthal already knows the gruesome ending and stands up to leave. He doesn't have to listen to this. Carl begs him to stay, and not sure why, Wiesenthal sits back down. Increasingly weak, barely able to talk, Carl describes how even more Jews are herded and locked into the house before it is doused with gasoline, hand grenades thrown into the window, and the house goes up in flames. The horror, the sounds, the sight. Carl is particularly distressed by seeing a man whose shirt is already on fire holding a small child. By his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his hand free, the man covered the child's eyes. Then he jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. Then from the other windows fell burning bodies. We shot. Oh, God, we shot. War can create so many unreal moments. As a Catholic, Carl explains he wants to die in peace and must confess. He longs to beg forgiveness from a Jew, but had not even been sure if there were any Jews left. I know that what I'm asking you is too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace he tells Wiesenthal. So Wiesenthal has sat silent for this confessional monologue. Close to death himself, he tries to take in all of the ironies, anger, 
despair, exhaustion, sorrow, pain, throughout this intimate declaration of guilt. Here lay a man in bed who wished to die in peace, but he could not because the memory of a terrible crime gave him no rest. By him sat a man also doomed to die, but who did not want to die because he yearned to see the end of the world, to see the end of all the horror that blighted the world. He did not want to die. At last, I made up my mind, and without a word, I left the room. Silence is a friend of war. Silence is an enemy of war. What bothers Wiesenthal is his silence at the bedside of the dying Nazi. Was he right or wrong not to speak? Was he right or wrong to withhold the requested pardon? Forgiveness is an act of volition, Wiesenthal asserts, and only the sufferer is qualified to make the decision. At the end of his story, Wiesenthal asks the reader to exchange places with him, to ask themselves, what would I have done? What would you have done? The question for you and for me is the same. What would I have done? I had blank cards inserted into the order of service if you want to jot your own notes. Your answer is your own. So the remaining two-thirds of the book are answers to this question in the form of essays by writers, jurists, political leaders, other Holocaust survivors, theologians, and victims of genocide in Bosnia, Cambodia, China, Tibet. And each response varies, shaped by personal experience, belief system, and the political realities of each writer. So I think the story can be reframed in broad terms and forgiveness considered from a remote perspective. Can one person stand in for others to grant forgiveness to a stranger? Is that forgiveness possible? From another perspective, can Simon Wiesenthal, as a singular human with all the life experiences, both good and bad, which shaped him up to that moment, grant forgiveness to Carl, also an individual formed by his own accumulation of unique life events. Here before us are both the philosophical notion of forgiveness and the very specific act of forgiving. What would I have done? The question looms large. Our 
Unitarian and Universalist traditions offer values that speak of forgiveness. I'll talk about that first, and then because I ask you to answer the question, what would I have done? I will give you my personal best as I understand it today. So from our UU response, first, it is shaped by how the devastations of the Holocaust and World War II set off deep change in Western religion. Elements of Christianity were wholly complicit in the war's evil, while others were inspired to heroics and martyrdom. At the time of World War II, Unitarianism and Universalism were separate traditions. Our churches often stood in opposition of the Nazi violence. For example, Reverend Norbert Chopik, his work led directly to death. He was the Unitarian minister in Prague. He's the one that created the Flower Communion to give concrete expression to the humanity-affirming principles of our liberal faith. And the flowers symbolize the uniqueness of each individual coming together in community. But Chapek was sent to die in Dachau with the Nazis declared him too dangerous for the Reich for him to be allowed to live. That's what the court records say. And so Hope Church holds a flower communion each spring. Our Unitarian Service Committee, now our Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, was formed in 1941 with the explicit purpose of assisting European refugees endangered by Nazi persecution. And our flaming chalice was created as a symbol that meant safe during the war. You couldn't tell who was safe, who was a friend, who was a foe. And the flaming chalice said friend. And we've kept its flame of compassion lit ever since. In the wisdom of our universalist mothers and fathers resides a similar emphasis on the value of a person, each person. The universalists evolved out of a belief that God is too kind and too loving to to condemn anyone to hell for an eternity. That all are equally embraced stands well alongside our humanist heritage that derives its moral values from human need and welfare. Together they form the core of the guiding Unitarian Universalist principle We affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Every person. Accepting the inherent worth and dignity of the Nazi and the Holocaust survivor, the saint and the sinner, the wise and the foolish. And it's something we must struggle with over and over again. We can be hard-pressed to find inherent worth and dignity when we see terrible injustice and evil done by human hand. Rereading the sunflower this week, 
while also trying to comprehend the agonizing local and international headlines, was almost too real for me. Hamas, Israel, Iraq, ISIS, Russia, Africa, Tulsa. Another Unitarian Universalist principle confirms that we are all brothers and sisters in the interconnected web of life. Seeing how we are interrelated moves us to help the victim while calling us to have a measure of mercy for the perpetrator. It is our firm belief that no one is disposable, no one is without inherent worth. Our notion of forgiveness is profoundly shaped by these Unitarian and Universalist principles. Before I go further, I want to clarify some misunderstandings of what it means to forgive. Some confuse forgiveness with approval. Forgiving someone is not a tacit or implied acceptance of harm or evil. It does not change the seriousness of the past. If Wiesenthal had said, I forgive you, to Carl, he would not be erasing or excusing the Nazi cruelties or death. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness actually takes a stand. It concedes something terrible has happened, harm was done, pain inflicted. Forgiveness states what has occurred cannot be undone. Forgiveness draws a line. It's a marker in time, separating the past from the present and the potential future. This limitation, its inability to change the past, is also the power of forgiveness. We have agency to change the present moment and with it alter the future. We can't predict what would change. We have to let go of that sense of control. If I apologize, then you... No, that doesn't work. The only person changed may be the person saying, I forgive you. Often that can be enough. At the same time, forgiveness can be a simple bridge across vast chasms of hurt and pain. And the other side of I forgive you may bring totally unexpected relief and resolve. So trust is an element of forgiveness. It takes trust to imagine change can happen while letting go of what could not be changed. Unitarian Universalist theologian Tom Owen Towell reminds us that our faith is demanding. Forgiveness has challenged us, he writes, to anchor hurts and wrongs in the past while advancing with our lives. Practicing forgiveness has stretched progressives to experience the full course of hurt and bitterness, healing and reconnection. Forgiveness has also summoned Unitarian Universalists to humanize rather than demonize 
the evildoer. It has compelled us to shape the distinction between justice and retaliation. It has obliged us to grasp that forgiveness is a choice, not a compulsion. Forgiveness is integral to growing up theologically. So returning to Wiesenthal's situation with our Unitarian Universalist principles in mind, we could make the case, I could make the case, that while he didn't speak the actual words to Carl, that Carl begged him to say, Wiesenthal's staying to listen is an acceptance of Carl's inherent worth and dignity. I'd say he implicitly forgave him on a certain level. Considering the complex situation, he treated him graciously as a full human being, bearing witness to Carl's full course of hurt and fear and bitterness, listening, listening wholeheartedly to another is a profound gift. It's a confirmation of the other human being. It is participation in the interconnected web of life. Listening creates and affirms that a relationship exists in that web. And Wiesenthal did this many times over by listening at Carl's bedside, by preserving in writing what he heard for millions of others to now hear, and by never forgetting. Forgiving is rehumanizing, which Wiesenthal certainly did to a stranger, to an enemy, to an SS officer. My own view of this long ago situation is shaped by the same UU optimism and also by my Buddhist meditation. In Buddhism, we are trained to start with ourselves in all matters. This stance is not selfish or self-centered, but an insightful humanist perspective. We cannot give what we do not have. Forgiveness must begin with ourselves. Instead, we stand in constant need of separating ourselves from our shortcomings and our failures. We get trapped by that misguided notion that forgiving ourselves is approval of our shortcomings rather than an affirmation of our worth. In matters requiring forgiveness, follow the in-flight instructions about oxygen masks. To start the flow of oxygen, pull the mask towards you. If you're traveling with a child or someone who requires assistance, secure your mask on first and then assist the other person. Forgiveness is like oxygen. You have to breathe it first, before you can give it to others. Forgiving yourself is rehumanizing yourself. And I promised I'd try to answer Wiesenthal's challenge, what would I have done? I have two answers. I have a best self answer, and I have a not so great self answer. 
If I had been under the emotional and physical degradation Wiesenthal endured and brought into that darkened room, I doubt I would have listened tolerantly or responded with any compassion. Do you know the acronym HALT? It comes from 12-step programs to discourage anyone in recovery from becoming too hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And if compromised by any one of these conditions, much less all four for extended periods of time, you are less likely to respond with integrity, with your best self. And in the addiction, to walk away from whatever addictive situation you're in. And I know how unkind, impatient, and cruel I can be when I am overly tired, when I am hungry, or in a rage. My reptilian brain would have been the one in control sitting by Carl's bedside, the part of me ruled by instinct and not tempered by feeling or higher thought. So what would I have done? I wouldn't have mustered any feelings to forgive Carl. My enlightened self-answer, the answer that arises from believing that all humans have value while seeing revenge and cruelty as always destructive is to forgive him. And I would, res- I would stress the I in I forgive you. I cannot be a representative for others. I cannot speak for others. But as a fellow human being, I can find within myself all the ways I too have been duped by power, by authority, by fear, by violence, by stupidity, by boredom, by rebellion, and especially by the need for acceptance. Given a different birth, genetic makeup, and circumstances, I might make all the choices Carl made when he joins the Nazis and murders the innocent in mindless hatred. Carl, I forgive you. May we never, ever forget what we are capable of doing. May it be so.